The following podcast is proudly brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use the link in the description and use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen. And also use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off windows, keys, and die shrink to get 3% off everything else on the website at cdkeyoffer.com. Now on with the show. Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today, you know, I, I really wanted to just switch things up a bit. You know, I, I have someone coming up who's like an expert on FPGAs and like, like, honestly, like a wave, <laughs> like computations and data. I have someone uh, coming up who's like an expert on console hardware. I've got someone coming up who, it, who runs a major uh, pre-built PC company, but I just, we've been talking a lot about supply and stuff. And I think sometimes we just got to talk about the games. And frankly, this is a huge blind sight in my, in something that's definitely a major part of the gaming hardware industry, which is actually competitively using that hardware in tournaments. And so I guess that is a disclaimer. I'll say up front, like, I think people sometimes, you know, like to call me an expert. I, I don't think I'm an expert on anything, but I'm certainly just com a complete Luddite when it comes to uh, competitive, well, really any type of competition, to be honest, but especially competitive gaming. So, you know, don't, if I ask dumb questions, don't judge me, but but uh, I hope to learn a lot today with um, the audience. And I guess, yeah, I'll let my guest introduce himself. Hey, yeah, thanks, Tom, for having me. So uh, I'm Phil Englert, uh, and uh, I currently work for Ross Video as the business development manager for esports globally. Uh, but before that, I've, I've worked in the esports industry for about six years now, and before that was in the sports broadcast industry. Um, so I've worked on tons of different games, tons of different productions. I've been very fortunate, and uh, I, I've, uh, I hope to bring some insight to the table today and kind of kind of help educate the viewers on on what it's like out there and maybe speculate on on some some future events that might happen in esports or at least the growth of the industry. So thanks for having me. Yeah, and it wasn't even you that reached out to me first. It was like how did you I, I am curious. I do like to ask this, you know, especially when someone reaches out to me like how how did you get pulled by like I think a coworker to maybe come on this show. Yeah, so uh one of my coworkers actually is is a huge fan of the show, um watches it religiously and and he has been kind of looking for some YouTube uh channels and YouTube podcasts that might be interested in having and having some insight from me. So he just messaged me and said, "Hey, you know, what do you think about this?" and I said, "Yeah, it looks looks fun, looks great. Looks like, you know, my kind of audience, my kind of community." Uh, so then uh, he reached out to you and connected us, Tom, and, and here we are. So kind of a funny, funny, funny how that happens, eh? What was the road that brought you to where you are today? You know, as little or as much as you want to tell us. I mean, I, I, like even just little details we can touch on quickly. Like, like where are you from? Where, where did you go to college? What made you 
choose the initial path you did at college, what got you into esports, you know, all of that. I am curious. Yeah. So I'm from Colorado originally, uh, born and raised mountain boy. I mean, I'm from the suburbs, so I wasn't raised in the mountains, but I spent a lot of time going to the mountains. And uh, I grew up just really interested in, in creative projects, you know, making my own films at a young age. I got a camera for my birthday and I was just obsessed with, you know, trying to make movies. And that, that of course, led to getting a better computer, getting editing software. Software, uh, teaching myself, you know, all the creative softwares that I could, um, which led to stop motion animation, which was my passion, and that's that's what I wanted mm. to do. I wanted to be a stop motion animator, and uh, so then I went out to California for film school. Uh, so I moved from Colorado to Orange County, and I went to Chapman University. Uh, got into the film program there, and uh, that was kind of an interesting pivotal moment because I had the choice of either getting in the digital arts program or getting mm -hmm. in the film production program. And at the time, and it still is, but the film production program was, I guess, more prestigious. They had a lower acceptance rate. Uh, and so everyone that I talked to at the school, they told me to, uh, to apply for the film production program because um, that would be, you know, if I got in there, then, mm -hmm. then that would be, um, you know, more like that would be harder to get into than the they, digital They're like, degree. you can do it. You yeah. should do it. Yeah, they're like, if you can, you should do it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I got into the film production program. And uh, and then I was still hell bent on becoming a stop motion animator. Uh, and I actually was going down that path of directing, becoming a stop motion animator. Uh, and then it just almost broke me. Uh, I was making a stop motion film my junior year. I, I, I finished that one. I was gearing up to do my senior thesis. I was going to do a stop motion senior thesis. Um, and just the scope of it, the timing, the, the hurdles I was going to have to overcome, they just kind of broke me. Um, and at that point, I switched to sound design. Sound was my second mm -hmm. passion. I loved music. I love sound. Uh, and I, I started working in sound. And that led me, uh, after graduation, down two paths. One of those was into live broadcast sound for college sports um, with mm -hmm. ESPN. And then the other was uh, actually doing sound design for a podcast, you know, small, like uh, small, you know, web based kind of projects, video projects. Uh, I never really had done live sound. I'd only done, you know, post-produced sound and everything. Um, and so at that point, that was really a big learning crash course for me. Uh, and uh, I helped build this small ESPN truck. It was right when ESPN 3 was coming out. So ESPN was starting to stream. And as part of that initiative, they basically, they knew they wanted content. They're like, we just need a bunch of content all over the country, all over the world. Mm -hmm. So they started partnering up with different conferences. Um, and at that point, we were building a truck for the Big West Conference out in California. Um, and so we built this small concept truck, which was a van and a trailer. And out of that truck, we were able to put on, you know, real high quality ESPN broadcasts. And it was just a group of kids just fresh out of college, uh, just making it happen, being led by this amazing guy named Andrew Leahy, who I still have the pleasure of working with today. Uh, and, and he just kind of whipped us into shape. And it was a wild experience. Hmm. And from there, I just fell in love with the live production environment. I did sports. Uh, I, I was in sound, like I said. And then from there, uh, I, tr I learned how to uh, direct. I learned how to cut the cameras uh, mm -hmm. live. And I learned more production elements um, just because it was a smaller truck. So you were able to touch different things. You were able to help out different departments. Um, and, you know, the bigger broadcast industry, like the bigger trucks that have been doing, you know, NFL and MLB for years, um, a, a lot of those positions, they're really kind of solidified. And so as a younger person coming in, it's a little bit harder to work your way up. You kind of have to pay your dues before you actually get mm -hmm. a, you know, touch the high-end equipment. 
Uh, but that wasn't the case with me. I got a, I got my hands on a lot of expensive equipment at a young because age. Because it was like a new initiative, a new project, right? Exactly. And it was the budgets were small, so they couldn't afford the big crews. Um, so they found, you know, fresh out of college people like me that were just trying to get their starts. And uh, we just struggled through it. Um, and so it was really exciting. And I learned to direct there. And then uh, I, I did a couple esports events because I was still a freelancer. So I, I worked on my first esport event was as a sound guy. Actually, it was in Justice Two uh, Grand Finals in in LA. That was and that was kind of like that eye opening of like, oh, so this is esports. You know, I, I knew about esports. I had played a lot of video yeah, games. Yeah, I mean, everyone's heard of it, but then like once you were actually there directing the cameras and doing stuff, you're like, oh, this is interesting right yeah it, it was crazy and i remember wa seeing the line of, of fans waiting to get in and just thinking wow this is a lot bigger than i thought it was going to be uh from there i went and uh you know i was doing a couple esports events here and there but really the big breakthrough for me was one day uh i was sitting at home watching tv on a wednesday like an independent contractor does who doesn't have a, a show that day mm -hmm. and uh, i got a text from a friend who said hey I'm on this esports show right now. Somebody got sick. Can you come and fill in? Uh, it's going to be really simple. It's just you're going to be cutting four cameras. No worries. I said, sure, I'm not doing anything today. Showed up. Ended up being a, an awesome PUBG show back in 2018. Uh, and I wasn't just cutting cameras. I was directing the observers. And so I had a team of four observers, and we were flying around this island covering this battle. And I was hooked. I was just like, this is the coolest thing you can do in production. Um, because as a director, like I want every camera to be a drone. I want to break the laws of gravity. I want to be able to be as creative as I want. And all of a sudden I realized with video games, with many of them, there are these virtual cameras that the observers mm -hmm. utilize in the spectator client that you can be creative. You can really make awesome stuff. And I was hooked. And the company that I did that for, they really liked what I was doing. So then they hired me on full time. And then I devoted the next you know, four or five years of my life uh, to just focusing on how to direct esports events, um, how to utilize the tools that the game provides, um, as well as figuring out how to mix the tools of the game with the production tools. So that's when I took my broadcast experience and, and all of the broadcast equipment that I'd worked for, worked with for years, um, and kind of mixed those two worlds. Uh, and then, you know, after that, I, I wanted to expand a bit more and, and, be, and be able to work kind of outside of just in-game and learn more about the industry as a whole. And that's when I joined Ross. Um, and it's been awesome here ever since. And uh, I've, been, I've been very fortunate to travel and, and connect with a lot more like-minded esports people. Mm -hmm. And the esports industry is a very small industry. So once you start getting to know people, it just kind of blossoms. Well, so, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I, actually, my next question, I'm going to kind of ask it this way. Uh, so 10 years ago, if you were <laughs> to talk to your former self and, and tell them you have the title you do now working on esports, like... You know, or even I, I think the question might be more interesting if it was 15 years ago, even maybe or, 20, you know, when you were doing or 20, when you were doing like stop animation stuff, like, would you have believed it? Like, because it sounds like you 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 got into PCs not for gaming, but because you needed something to make, you know, stop animation. And this has been quite a winding road that eventually you got to just because you really didn't even realize this was something you'd enjoy so much. Right. Yeah, honestly, I, I probably wouldn't believe my like, myself. I came back from the future and I'd be like, yeah, you're a robot. <laughs> this is a movie. Yeah. You're a robot. You know, you're, you're trying to throw me off the trail here. But 
Yeah, you know, I've always really liked video games, but to be very honest, I've never been great at video games. I, I was always mm-hmm. like in my friend group. I was never the, the one that was destroying everybody. You know, I was I, I could hang uh, when we were really having our Halo 2 sleepover parties and stuff like that. Um, but I was never great at video games and I was always much more focused on on um, on creative projects and just being creative. So I think for me at that time, I was 100 uh, percent committed to the stop motion path. Um, and, and also I, I didn't really understand how the industry worked at the time. And I think when I got mm-hmm. into film school, I started to really understand the industry. And at that point I realized that stop motion was a, a much more difficult path. It's a really big, it's a niche and I still love stop motion, but the, um, what you can do with CGI these days, you know, I think the Lego movie proved it perfectly. You mm-hmm. know, when you watch the Lego movie, you, it looks like it's stop motion. It looks like it's real Legos, but it was all done in computer. So I think the, the amount of time that it takes to do stop motion, um, is, is, is it's very laborious to say the least. So, and in terms of the gaming route, yeah, I, I would have, I would have never, I would have never believed it. And also I didn't know enough about it that I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize that I would love it so much. And now I game all the time. Now I'm, I'm obsessed with esports. I'm obsessed with what we can do. I'm super passionate about the space. So it's interesting that this kind of became my new creative project um, in, in, a, in a way where it just kind of combined my love of technology and my love of storytelling um, and also you know, my love of action movies and being able to be placed on the battlefield as if I'm, as if I'm there. So yeah, I, I guess no, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you say like the whole stop animation thing kind of broke you and then you move to more and more dynamic things. And there's really nothing more dynamic that maybe minimizes the amount of physical things. That, and correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe it's just as big of an issue as like covering a game on ESPN. But like the amount of physical things that can go wrong, the amount of like menial tasks, it's once the game starts there's not a lot of repetitive and boring things that you got to do over and over again. And yes, a camera recording app or some software issue can happen, but at the same time, it's, it's probably less likely than like just the batteries constantly going out in sports games and stuff. So like there's more hands-on to just keep doing things probably without those weird roadblocks that are always annoying right yeah 100 percent um and you know one of the biggest things for me was when i was working on post-produced projects like stop motion or or my short films yeah i would be completely consumed by the project you know i wouldn't be Mm -hmm. sleeping it would be so stressful for me everything would just be hanging over my head in these projects you know it was like i could never get rid of that anxiety Um, And I've suffered from anxiety since I was, you know, about 15 Mm -hmm. or 16. So that like those projects really played into that, especially once you have the pressure. That's not going to be good for that. (laughs) Yeah. And and so for me, I liked the fast paced anxiety of of production of live production, because at the end of the show, no matter what happened, no matter how bad the day was, no matter how much stuff went wrong, you'd pack up the stuff, go home, you'd shake it off and it was done. Mm-hmm. Well, Clean Sweep writes in, he says, hey, Tom and Phil, what are the complexities of handling and mixing multiple audio and video streams for broadcast? There's been plenty of times watching live physical sports where an audio mix goes bad for a few minutes or the camera that was following the action wasn't the best pick. 
There's also times where someone's mic's on and you hear them say something you're not supposed to. Those are always hilarious. Oh, yeah. Uh, it seems like anything beyond fighting games that have local multiplayer functionality would require as much or more work as a physical sports game to capture the main action, especially if you're working with a big team of players. Yeah, that's an amazing question. Um, and I'm really glad it was asked because audio is the most important and one of the most complex aspect of esports that few people think about and mm -hmm. is is definitely does not get the love that it deserves. And it is incredibly complex. So just to kind of break this down for you, right? Um, in sports, you're looking at your main uh, announcer microphones, right? Their headsets. Then you're looking at what we call nat mics uh, or natural sound mics. Those are your ambience mics that are placed around the field. Um, that's how you get the, the crowd sounds. That's how you get, you know, what's happening on the field. And then at the higher level, you obviously have players being mic'd up uh, so you can hear the, the, the pads cracking. You can hear the, the quarterback um, on a football game, for example, doing the hike. Well, in eSports, you, uh, you have each game has their own audio, right? So you need to make sure you're capturing mm -hmm. the audio of the game because if you're watching a shooting game and the guns the gun sounds aren't lining up with what you're seeing yeah. it's you're go totally going to throw you out of it um so you have to be able to capture that audio from the game and then as you're cutting you have to be able to have each cut follow whatever audio goes with it so that has to there is special technology that has to be used for that it's called audio follows video um and basically that it, so you you pair each of the mm -hmm. feeds with the correct oh, audio yeah. so then when you cut to that feed it then brings the audio with it in the sports show, the the audio mixer, they control all the audio channels and they mm -hmm. you know bring up this mic and that mic and it's much more of a fluid process. Whereas in esports, there's a lot more engineering that happens beforehand to make sure the audio is landing in the correct place so that when it needs to be taken live, it, it matches up. Then not to mention, you have player comms, right? So player comms are important for mm -hmm. multiple reasons. The players need to be able to hear each other so they can actually communicate and compete at the highest level. But then also, the players, uh, the coaches need to be able to hear the player comps, right? So you have to be able to get aligned to the coaches so the coaches can listen into the players. Um, and then if you have those pl player, player comms mixed with the game audio, then if the coach is trying to listen to all that, he could be being blown out with the game audio and the players and they could yep. be competing. So you have to be able to separate the game audio from the player comms. But then let's say that you want the player comms for a production piece. So let's say you have a replay package where we're doing a mm -hmm. listen in, right? as we call it. And, and you're saying, okay, we're going to listen to Team Liquid and what they did last game and, and how they communicated and how they overcame the adversity and ended up winning that game or losing that game, whatever it might be. So then you have to have the ability to add back in the player comms when you want it. So you want to add the player comms when you want them, but you don't want it there all the time. There's times that you want to remove it. Uh, and then on top of that, you have all those talent mics, talent headsets for the casters, the analysts, the host. Um, and then you also have the, if it's an in-venue with crowd, you also have the crowd sounds, which then creates a whole nother problem. Because <laughs> if you have speakers that are then playing to a stadium, then you oftentimes have that bleeding into the production mix. So you have your broadcast audio mix and then you have your mix that goes to the house um, and you don't want to be hearing that echoing through the, the broadcast. So there's so much dialing and tweaking that goes into it um, and being able to control those elements and, and, and route them correctly to the correct destination is a huge part of esports. And it is something that when um, traditional uh, sports broadcasters get into esports, um, like engineers, for example, it's one of the first things that they have to have a crash course in because they realize, oh my God, I have to have 
all these audio feeds landing mm-hmm. in my router fed through to the switcher so that they match up. But then I need to, you know, all those little idiosyncrasies that I just, you know, laid out for you. So I hope that answers your question. And when you hear bad sound in esports, please be nice to the audio guy. I've been, <laughs> I've been that audio guy. And oftentimes it's not their fault. Oftentimes it's just gremlins in the, in the gear that just cause the problems. And, they, and trust me, there, is, there are people behind the scenes running around with their hands in the air, screaming, trying to fix it as quickly as they can. So it is definitely not just something that's, that's sitting there. They They're know. not lazy. They're not know. lazy. It is, it is a hard thing to do. It is, it is a very difficult job to be an audio mixer uh, on an esports event. I can tell you that from firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. So, all right, we've talked about, I guess, the scope of how much effort goes into running one of these productions, which you've been in charge of that. But right now, you, you're more of a venue. You help build the venues now more so. And please tell me if I'm butchering what your job is, you know, more so than literally directing it at this point, right? Correct. Yeah. So I, I don't operate very much anymore. I really miss it. Um, I'm actually looking mm-hmm. to do a few events again just to, to get back on the dragon because <laughs> I miss I miss riding the dragon. Well, and make sure you actually understand what, what's involved, right? Every now and then it's good to do uh, some of the work yourself so you remember. Exactly. Yeah. And just to scratch that itch and uh, and yeah, see, see what's going on firsthand, right? Because now my job is to make sure that the equipment that my company builds um, is, is, is working the way it should in esports and figuring out mm-hmm. when somebody wants to build an esports venue or wants to have this crazy esports sports production it's figuring out what we have that we can offer that's going to help them get there that's going to make their lives easier that's going to eliminate problems for them that's going to make that all that complexity that i just laid out uh you know easier and 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 make the dragon ride a bit smoother right so you know once you have a saddle on the dragon and you you get the right get the right uh, stirrups, you know, then you can uh, then you can have a bit more control. Right. So it's about giving more control to the people that need it um, and, and helping them do their jobs more efficiently and, and solve problems uh, that are going to continue that, so that the industry can continue innovating. The esports industry is such an innovative industry. Uh, everyone that goes into it is just innovative by nature. Um, and mm-hmm. also the fact that new games are coming out every single day, pretty much, um, and new mm-hmm. esports are popping up and rising to popularity or falling down. Um, you know, it's just such a dynamic ecosystem and trying to keep up with that and make sure that we're pushing it forward, I think, is, is, is a duty that I've kind of taken on my shoulders. And I know all of my colleagues have as well. Um, and, and every time we see one of our even one of our competitors make a cool innovation um, in esports. It's something that is exciting for all of us because it means the industry is moving forward. Now, I mean, so you say an innovation in esports, like so, like a new idea of how to show a camera view, or like, or like how to run a tournament and like the post game content that you can roll out you mean that's what you mean like coming up with new ways to show the game yeah and all of the above right so it it can be a mixture of a, a new way to cut the cameras a new way to transition between perspectives it can be a new way for the team to communicate, right? Organizing the team into different sub teams, right? So you might mm-hmm. take it a large observer team and break them up into groups of three or groups of two and kind of create these like little pods, so to speak. Um, or it might be a new piece of gear comes out that now can allow you to um, control audio better, for example, and be able to strip that away more easily. And the interface is a lot more intuitive. Um, but or, or it could be a new a new way to see LED screens, right? Like a new set, a new type of set, a new way to integrate LEDs into that set 
um, or, or, or new AR elements. We see a lot of innovations in augmented mm-hmm. reality graphics, right? When you watch, um, like I think one of my favorites was uh, League of Legends Worlds 2019 before the pandemic. And they had, they had these um, glass, I don't know if it was glass or plexiglass, but essentially on the stage, they had these walls, these glass and plexiglass walls that then the performers would stand behind. And so they actually projected the graphics onto that glass and it was creating augmented reality for the fans oh. in the stands because that's the problem with AR. Is I if see. You're so you the... could oh, so you could like almost like beam up like a hologram of what the person's doing in the audience. That's really cool. It was Imagine really if cool. We could do that in normal sports too, where you could just like in a football game like have a hologram of the guy running next to some yeah. people. That'd be crazy. And they didn't use it for the actual gameplay. They used it for the opening ceremony where they had music performers and mm-hmm. they had these amazing dance routines and and like, you know, there was this one part where these two music perform- performers looked like they were fighting each other with these magic spells. And so they were standing there, you oh, know, I doing see, it yeah. and then you've got the magic being projected in front of them and you know the fans in the audience could actually see that. So that was a huge innovation that for me was like, hmm. this is big because up to this point, AR was for people at home. And when you're sitting in the venue and there's an AR graphic, whether it's a dragon flying around the stadium or the battle bus flying in or, you know, the plane that about to drop people off, you know, all the fans in the audience would have to look up at the program feed on the LEDs wow. to see it. Whereas if you're at home watching it on Twitch, you get to see it in full effect. So, you know, those are the types of innovations that we're looking to push forward. And, and yeah, you nailed it in terms of like tournament structures. They're, like esports and league operations people are constantly trying to crack the code of how to build that perfect tournament. You know, listening to the feedback of the players, listening to the feedback of the fans. Um, you know, I know for a while there with with Warzone events, like kill races mm-hmm. were just starting to become ridiculous and people were just getting so frustrated with it. The players were not enjoying it. Um, and so they had to rework the, the different formats of the tournaments and, and how the point structures work. Um, and so that is constantly being tweaked. And then as new games, you know, come up and, and rise, um, then that obviously needs a new format because no game is the same. So the attention to detail detail there uh, and, and the nuances are it's a constant iterative process mm-hmm. today's video is brought to you by cdkoffer.com whether you're looking to get good deals on playstation microsoft office professional or both windows 10 and windows 11 operating systems cdkoffer.com has you covered cdkey is a long-term sponsor of moore's laws dead and that's because they have been consistently providing me and moore's laws dead's fans with a service that i think pc gaming just needs reasonable operating system and Microsoft Word prices. We all have to use these products and we don't need to overpay for them if you use cdkeyoffer.com. And you know what? I know I will be using these products later this year for a new Raptor Lake or Zen 4 system most likely. And I will do so knowing that, well, they're all legitimate keys and they are going to be delivered to me quickly and promptly when I buy them. Don't waste any more money than you need to this year. Use the link in the description or on screen to go to cdkeyoffer.com. And when you're there, whatever you decide to buy, make sure you use one of these offer codes. Broken Silicon gets you 25% off all Windows products and Dyson gets you 3% off everything else. And this really does help the channel. It helps you save money. Use these offer codes, use the link, go to cdkeyoffer.com today. So, all right. I'm just going to ask this, and it might might sound like a dumb question, but I I don't know how else to ask it. Like, 
how does this industry function? Like, mm. how do they find a gamer to get on a team? You know, I, I'm guessing you maybe they'll start on Twitch and they're like, oh, you seem to actually be good. You've actually won this online tournament. And, you know, you know, but like, how, how does that like how much experience do you have with that side of it? And how do they decide when to run tournaments? How do they how do you guys decide which games to use? And and how does this, you know, like Falto writes in from the Moore's Law said Patreon, he asks, like, how do esports make money? Mm. Yeah, that's it's it's a really interesting question and it's constantly changing. Um, a lot of people are still figuring out how to get the revenue out of esports events. But essentially, um, and, and you know, Tom, you and I were talking about this the other day, but I like I'm just gonna start with the game itself and then we'll work our way down to the orgs okay. because it's a very complex ecosystem. But essentially what you have is um, you know, if you look at a traditional sport like like, let's just take football, for example. You know, nobody worldwide owns the game of football itself. Yeah, you might have the NFL. They own all the NFL, all the content that is produced by that league. But you've got peewee leagues. You've got high school leagues. You've got college leagues. Uh, you know, you and I could grab a, a, a ball of any shape. We could go in an alleyway and we could play the game of football without having mm -hmm. to log on, without having to have an account, without having anybody own that, right? Well, esports, somebody owns the game, right? Somebody owns the game of Fortnite. Somebody owns COD. Somebody actually owns and controls the game. And therefore, you have a lot of buy-in in esports events from the game developers and distributors. So a lot of times, they are using esports events to basically, uh, you know, get more people to play their game. It's a big marketing. Mm -hmm. It's a big marketing push for them, um, making sure that people are not only playing their game but also are trying to become better. They're they're pushing to strive to get to that next level because they're inspired by the professional players. When you watch mm -hmm. somebody play your favorite game at the highest level, it makes you want to go play it more, and it makes you want to get better, and makes you want to practice. Um, and then also now you have these um, figureheads for the game, right? You have these. Um, influencers that once they are becoming popular in that scene, they can now become mm -hmm. spokespeople for the game. They can now, you know, stream the game. And, and now you have more people watching the game. You have the game being played constantly. And it's all about what we call reach. Right. And, and mm -hmm. how many eyeballs can you get? How many influencers can you get? How many how many how much reach can you get out of each event? Um, out of each piece of out of each piece of the puzzle. Um, so that's really a big part of where the money is made is a lot of it goes back to the distributors and the developers um, because they get more people to play the game or maybe they have a, a championship skin that comes out, um, you know, right around the championship time that people buy um, or or maybe it's yeah just the continued growth of the game. Now, that being said, a lot of times those developers are then hiring production mm -hmm. companies to do the events. So those production companies are now being paid to do the events by those by those developers. Um, and, and so that's where they, they get the money is they get paid to produce the event. That includes equipment rentals. That includes staffing the event, paying the, the, the day rates of, of all the crew members like myself who worked on the events um, and, and everything else that goes with it. Well, then we talk about organizations, right? And teams and organizations are a very interesting part of esports because they're all so different. And I think one of the best ways to understand teams is you really have to look at each team as its own entity and also each team having its own personality and based off the personality that team kind of adopts 
that will ultimately define their growth trajectory as well mm. as influence a lot of their revenue potential. So if you take a, a, an org like 100 Thieves, for example, you know they have really made a big push as, as a big lifestyle uh, lifestyle and fashion brand um, where, where they are you know, putting out a lot of merch. They have you know, drops for merch and, and things like that. They're putting a big focus on, on being seen as this classy um, you know, brand uh, that you want to be a part of, but you want to buy their hoodie, you want to wear their, their, their new set of joggers um, and be a part of that community, right? And then they use their influencers to continue pushing that. They still have their competitive influence um, and they still compete at a high level, but a lot of their focus has really be been put recently on merchandise. Whereas you take a team like Liquid, and Liquid has mm. defined themselves as being winning. They want to win. They want to be the most winning uh, org in the world, right? So they focus on just trying to get the best players. They focus on their content being hyper competitive, um, and it's a little less focused on 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 just being an influencer and being entertaining. Um, and and then of course you've got Phase, right? And they're kind of the X factors, right? They kind of are the mixture mm -hmm. of both worlds. And and a big part of the Phase personality, from what I've seen, I think is is you know trying to. Try Trying to like be the counterculture guys, right? Or the counterculture people, excuse me. Yeah, I'm looking up some of these teams while you're talking, by the way. Keep going. Oh, though. Yeah. it is. I can see what you, I didn't even realize. It, it's not a surprise, but I didn't realize, like, unlike, you know, traditional sports, how much there is just it's up for grabs, whatever you want to do. Like, you could have, like, the Minnesota Vikings, like, decide this is how we're going to make a TV show. And I guess they things like that have happened in the past with, like, cartoons and stuff, I think, yeah. in, like, the 90s and stuff. But, like, this is much more variable how people decide to make money off of being a mm -hmm. professional gamer. Yeah. And I mean, it all ultimately all comes down to influence, uh, you know, sponsorship opportunities, um, any merchandise they can sell. Um, but a lot of it is building their platform, right? It's building that content platform. It's getting followers um, and it's building themselves up as influencers. And the more influence they have, the more ultimately lucrative they can become in the long run, because then that makes them more appealing to big sponsorship opportunities that brings in, you mentioned professional athletes, you know, uh, FaZe has done multiple partnerships with professional athletes where professional athletes will game with them, hang out with them. Um, and that obviously increases FaZe's credibility. It makes people want to go watch them even more, makes them look even cooler. Um, so it really is this, you know, because of the way social media is and because of the way the internet functions, right? And because of the way communities kind of um, all are driven more towards platforms now, it's really about building your platform and then deciding what brand you are, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, the players, you know, they make a lot of their money off of if they win. Um, but once you sign with an org, you know, you're but signing a deal. it's less about deal. that, right, than it is like at football. They get paid these, and baseball, these insane contracts. It's more about how are you going to profit off of it and less about Oh, they just signed a hundred million dollar contract, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I assume there's still like contracts though being signed onto one of these teams. Yeah, definitely. You know, you have a contract where you have obligations, right? You have sponsorship obligations where if that team is sponsored by, you know, Adidas, right? You, you're you going to have to do certain Adidas events that year where you are obligated to do that. Um, there might, depending on the contract, there might be a percentage of any winnings that you give to the org. Um, you know, there might be a, there might be a portion of advertising money that you make off Twitch that you give to the org. And then in, in that contract, you'll also most likely get a salary from the org. So a lot of people, a lot of players want to go to orgs because it's the safer bet, right? You're, you're, mm. you're guaranteeing yourself a salary to be a professional gamer, which is kind of the dream for, for a lot of people. 
Um, whereas you can still kind of take the road less traveled. Um, you can be an influencer yourself. You can kind of be a, a self-starter, make all your own sponsorship deals, you know, get your Twitch stream or your YouTube channel going, um, get sponsorships organically, but then you don't have kind of that par- that parachute uh, to help protect you of the org. Mm-hmm. So. so, okay. Timo H writes in and he asks, can a game live only as an esports title with a minimal casual player base? My personal theory is healthy competitive scenes require a large base of the pyramid to draw upon upwards for competitors. And I actually want to piggyback on this question and ask, unlike traditional sports, for the most part, there is newer games being added all the time and then these become esports games but there are a few now that have been around for over a decade right so do you think it is required that something be one of the 10 most popular online games to play to be an esports title is that required you know but and how much of it becomes longevity like do you think any esports games we have right now will be played in a hundred years that last question about the hundred years, like I'm gonna baseball, have to think about. You know. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to think about the hundred years part. Um, but I, that's a really good point to bring up because you're absolutely right. With new titles popping up and, and old titles falling, I do think the player base and the fan base is is a big part of an esport being successful. That being said, uh, there there are a few kind of case studies of esports that are still around, um, even though they may not have a huge player base, and a big part of that is kind of name recognition. So, you know, a great example of of, mm-hmm. of an eSport that has a very small player base in America. Also, I think you have to look globally. You know, some games are bigger in different countries, and so you'll have eSports worldwide, but, you know, in, Amer- in North America, for example, it might not be very big, but in Europe it might be big, and in Asia it might be big. So a great example of that is Shadowverse, which is a card game. Um, it's, it's a Japanese card game. And it's very big in Japan, um, but it has a very small player base in America. And um, sometimes for an esport, for a North American Shadowverse event, there will be, you know, 200 people watching, something like that, maybe 150 Mm -hmm. people watching. So you ask, oh, well, how do they keep going? Well, Shadowverse is a card game where you buy new cards. So the game is basically built on these hyper-competitive players. They're not expecting casual players to really play the game. They're not expecting people to watch the eSport that aren't hyper-competitive players or aren't really into it at the highest level. So it's really used um, to help build that smaller community, but that community ends up spending more money on new cards that come out rather than a community or a game that's free to play. Um, So I think a lot of it depends on the game and the type of game that it is. I think a free-to-play game, um, ultimately, yeah, you need a bigger player base. You you need to have a big fan base. Because you're not charging for it. like Because there does seem to be this thing where, whether you like it or not, this is driven much more so by marketing and the companies themselves making money than it is, hey, my grandpa always used to go down to Wrigley Field. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's less of that and more of, there is a monetized driving force behind it that is the reason it keeps being pushed like do you and i guess i want to push again like so do you think though there will be a game where it's just like you know they haven't made a sequel in decades not that many people buy the game anymore because it's it was free at one point and it's still free but at the end of the day it's still in tournaments because this is just a staple of esports do you think like and and i again i don't, I don't really play many esports games, but you know, it's kind of like StarCraft, it may be something like that. Cause, you know, I could see, or 
I, I, you know, I, I like or some of the competitive games we still play now, but maybe something nothing lasts forever something happens to the company but the game's still out there and it just keeps being played because it's been perfected and balanced to the point that it's the most it's the best test competitively because it has been so balanced by patches for 20 years yeah i think you know this is of course speculation so take it with a grain of salt right Uh, but i think if there was a game that i was going to speculate would be around for many years uh, and hasn't changed all that much of course it has tweaks right like every game does but league of legends i think is a very esports driven game and i think Mm -hmm. league of legends has a does has done really well with their franchise model of having um these teams and they build storylines right you get to see these these rivalries Mm -hmm. develop over years and i think that's what really drives the esports side of it um and and i think the game is still very it's popular enough to keep to keep around for the non-esports people. But I think most people that play League also watch the esport. Whereas I think if you look at other games, a lot of people play the games and don't watch any of the esports events. You know, you could be a fan of the game, but not necessarily a fan of the esports because you just want to spend your time playing and you don't really care and mm-hmm. you don't really want to get into that scene. But I think in League, it's it's a very... Um, and also, it's a difficult game to play at a high level. Um, and, and, you know, it's... Okay. From that standpoint, I do think, uh, and also one of the big parts of League that I think they're doing really well is what they're doing with the universe. Um, you know, with Arcane coming out on Netflix, they're really diversifying what they can do with the IP. And I think we're going to see a lot more games doing that. I mean, we've already seen Dota 2, right? Dota 2 came out mm. with their Netflix show. Um, and, and they're they're competing with League in, in that regard. So I could see League and, and, and MOBAs. I think MOBAs in general are just a really great esport um, because they're really fun to watch. And um, it's very clear what's happening because of the top-down mm. perspective. Yeah. Um, so from that standpoint i think i think it's it's in my eyes it's kind of one of the best built esports structures i think csgo has been around for a long time um and csgo is still a great esport uh i think it's it's interesting seeing what's happening with valorant kind of pushing those the the genre so to speak um and and in reference to what i was saying about league um a game that is really popular right now and is taking over uh southeast asia and many other asian countries is a mobile game which is a moba called um mpl mobile mobile legends bang bang um and it is i've never heard of it I know you never heard of it, right? But it is huge. And they actually just set a record this year for the most views on one of their broadcasts. Um, And it was, you know, it was in the millions. It was like, you know, something crazy, like eight or nine million, all all concurrent, like watching it live. Whereas, you know, other events, they kind of tally in how many people watch the VOD and things like that. So you'll have million you'll have million views that way. But having that many eyeballs on it live. And mobile gaming is kind of is the next uh, the next big wave of the world because you have all these areas around the world where they might not have they might not be able to afford a console they might not mm-hmm. be able to afford a PC but they can afford a phone and they have Wi-Fi and so even in you know we're seeing that in India where the rural areas of India right now are just blowing up with esports and PUBG Mobile is taken over there. Um, and it's because of that accessibility factor, which with the way that the phone industry is working is just going to keep the signals are going to keep getting stronger. The phones are just going to keep getting better and faster and also cheaper for, for those that, that, um, you know, that are in those areas. So I think that's another really interesting area to watch. Um, and it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that develops in and fits into the esports scene as a whole. So kind of, 
leading off of what you just said about the different, like why it's popular there, which is simply it's obtainable, <laughs> you know, but Yoda King writes in and he says, as a big fan of CSGO, I was curious about what it's like to work with a game that old compared to something newer like Valorant. And is there anything different with working with Valve compared to a more traditional company like Riot Games to set up events? Also, what elements do you think makes a game esports worthy? Lately, I've seen a lot of games made with esports scenes in mind right away instead of something that happens organically like Counter-Strike. Are there pros or cons to this approach? So yeah, I guess that's I guess that's two questions there. And I and I, and I do like I like the first half because I am curious, you know, what is it like to cover a game like Counter-Strike that I mean you you I can run it on an integrated graphics card, you know. It's it's very easy to run versus newer ones that are harder to run. Yeah. So uh Counter-Strike is a, is an awesome game and it's an awesome esport and from a production end, Counter-Strike uh you know, they've had years to kind of perfect it. So when you're working on a Counter-Strike project, um it it it, you kind of have to follow the rules, right? So for an eSport that's been really established like that, the audience has an expectation. They know what it's supposed to look like. They've been watching it for 10 years. They've been watching, you know, the, the observers. Like, I mean, it has the same few observers like that on the big events that, that they've had for years. And those observers have kind of perfected the way that the game should be shown based off of what the community needs and what the community wants. So when you take on a game like CSGO, you need to make sure you do your research um, and, and you need to make sure that you are meeting those expectations. Um, also with that though, a game like CSGO has amazing tools. They've got great spectating tools. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and also it's, you know, a, an arena shooter like that, where it's just a five v five, you know, in a in a small space. Um, I think it's really great for esports because it's very easy to follow. Similar to what I was saying about MOBAs, um, and, and you know, it's all in a in a tight space. Um, so you don't you, you can still miss stuff, but it's not like there's things happening all over this giant map that you have to somehow piece together in a story. So you can you can build the story a little bit easier. Um, and in terms of in terms of working with you know. A company like Valve or, or or you know others like like Riot, you know each company is different, um, and each company has different goals. Each company has different ways of viewing their game. Um, they have different parts of their game that they want to make sure they keep intact, um, and and of course they 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 care. Like they really care about how the game is shown um, and, and the caliber of the event, um, and, and that really drives a lot of those decisions that have to be made. So as a director, when you're working on a game, you need to know the game. And that was part of one of the things that I really brought to the table with the team that we developed um, at Esports Engine when I was working with them was we spent our time playing and researching games and figuring out what the storytelling potential was of every single game. And then also figuring out what tools the game had um, so we could leverage those tools to tell the best story. But I am, I'm a huge advocate for in-game specialists and observers mm -hmm. that are experts in that game because those are the people that are going to pick up on those little storylines that that you know you're not going to know is happening um you're not going to know it's special but they're going to see it before you do and then they're going to be able to get the cameras in position and make sure they capture it um you know effectively so um from that standpoint i think when you're looking at a game that's really well established you just the innovations you can make on it are are a bit more marginal because mm -hmm. You have to be careful. You don't want to. You don't want to make the uh, community angry, and you want to make sure that it still fits their needs um, and what they're used to. Even if you disagree with it, I've directed games where I saw opportunities to do cool things, but I mm -hmm. knew the community wouldn't like it. 
um, because they had a certain way of looking at the game and the way that I would have taken it would have would have kind of changed that uh, and ruined that experience for them. Yeah, it's interesting. You keep coming up with this um, concept of it's got to be easy to follow if it's going to be a popular esport to watch because like. I've always thought of that, too, with um, specifically Battlefield. Like, Mm -hmm. EA keeps trying to make that an eSport, and I keep thinking... You know, I love Battlefield. I it's just not everything needs to be an esport, man. It's it's chaos, and it's like you know. I guess if you're gonna try to make that popular to follow, maybe you don't just have 64 cameras that confuse you to watch. Maybe yeah. what you should do is just decide on one squad to write a story around. Yeah, in a, the larger battle, right? Yeah, exactly. Games with respawns uh, are very are very difficult to piece those stories together. Mm-hmm. Not only because you're like if you're cutting around too much, you 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 miss things, but there's something that we call the death loop, and um, that's where basically you're on a player, that player dies, so then you cut away to a different player. That player then dies, so then you cut away to a different player. So you just get caught in this loop where you're just cutting away to all these players that are just getting killed the second you cut to them. And so it's you, not satisfying to watch at all. Of course not, yeah. And so you're absolutely right. Sometimes it's better just to, to find the, the story and build it, right? Watch the person who just respawned, watch them come back, watch their story develop. Um, and, and like you said, focus on those teams. And, and you know, I think that kind of goes into the second part of this question, which is, you know, the games that are built to be esports and then the games that, you know, maybe that's not as big of a focus when they're being built. And I do think that if when the developers build the game, if they keep esports in mind and that's one of their big driving, motivating forces for developing the game, then it's going to be a better esport, right? Because from mm-hmm. the structure, it's built to be an esport. That being said, though, there are plenty of games that have been adapted into esports that have that have had kind of the the code cracked um, that end up being really great and a lot of fun to watch, but weren't necessarily designed that way. Um, one example, I was going to say, there's there's a lot of failures for esports. It's like I, I think maybe it's a good thing to keep in the back of your head, but I. If, if you're literally just like, this is going to be an eSport before the game's even out, aren't you kind of putting the cart before the horse? I think, yes. I think advertising it that way is dangerous. I think mm-hmm. you build it that way when you build the structure, but the way you advertise it is to go for the wide player base. And then you know that as you fire up the eSport, um, that the game is built for it. So you know that it will be able to be a competitive, in, uh, a compelling game. To watch um and, and it will be good for esports but I, I do think it's dangerous to come out of the gate and say this is going to be the next biggest esport because gamers are notorious <laughs> you know like whenever you hear that you're yeah. like oh really yeah it's, you're a, gonna it's be very off-putting when i hear that yeah, you know me too uh it's and you know like because PUBG didn't start as thinking it'd be an esport it was a fun project that became popular exactly right? yeah exactly and then it you know blew up and and ultimately drove um, you know, it, a lot of people view it as the first battle royale, um, but in the esports industry, H1Z1 is still known as the first <laughs> technical battle yeah. royale, right? Um, but you know, PUBG was really the one that that paved that way, and then inspired a lot of other battle royales, and and kind of inspired that genre to grow. And battle royales as an esport can be can be awesome, and they can be really really difficult, uh, depending on how you look at it. I think 
If you, it's interesting when you look at PUBG and Fortnite next to each other because they're completely different games in terms of style, obviously, in terms of mm-hmm. what they're trying to go for in the player base. But one of the really big differences is how the esports were formed. So when you take PUBG, it's more of a league-based structure. So you have some of the same teams. They're competing every season. That You build those storylines. You kind of have the team that you know is, is one of the, be- the best teams. And, and then you have a new team that gets added in. You have these different league structures where you kind of have like your what, like in, it, what it would be in baseball where you have your minor league and then you have your major league. And that, um, that's how that's what decides if you're allowed to get into the final ex- tournament, right? You have to win. Because I was going to ask, you know, like I, I guess I can see how a team would form, but it's probably like much more organic compared to regular sports where it's like, I don't know, what was it? I grew up in central Illinois. I think there was like a minor league baseball team called the Cornhuskers or something, oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> I think in Fort Wayne, Indiana, there was like the, what was it, the tin hats? It's like a, a t- an apple with a tin hat on it or something. <laughs> that's awesome. And it's like, but that, that's where you would start maybe as a baseball player. And then they notice you. And then you go up to a higher one. Whereas in games, you can just, hey, let's make an esports team, start in these minor tournaments, see if we get noticed, right? That's how it starts, right? Yes. And I, I, I'm not sure with PUBG if the teams, if the orgs actually pay for their spots, like in other um, esports, um, like, you know, uh, like Overwatch, like the teams would basically, and that's how, you know, the NFL works, right? Where the teams, they buy their spot sure. in, the, in, the, in, the ter- in the season. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You've got these different tiers. And so then what they'll do is they'll let like the best team from the minor league into the major league the next season. So that team grinds the whole season, and then if they can win and prove they're good enough in the minor league, then they get their shot to play on the big league, um, which, of course, brings these amazing storylines because you've got the mm-hmm. underdog. You've got these people that are fighting for it. They're fighting to be there, and then they're going against the tried and true, tested, you know, the teams that have been in the, in the league for years, right? Um, and, it, and it really gives great storylines, um, but it also, it kind of makes becoming an esports professional a bit, a bit less attainable. Whereas Fortnite took the opposite approach. They, 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 took an open for, they took an open qualifying format where they basically said, hey, 50 million people that are playing Fortnite right now, any of you can make it to the World Cup. Any of you. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is be good enough. So they opened it up to the world and they basically said... Show us what you got. And they, you know, a lot of their esports are, 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 you know, it's a lot more solo driven or duo driven. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't have the, like in PUBG, the teams are really, that's what it's all about because of their, their league system. And so you, you know, and that I think was a really cool thing that they did because it gave a lot of hope to a lot of people in the world that thought, I could never become a professional gamer. I, I can't do this. And then they saw Fortnite say, yes, you can. And I think at that point, that, that created this, this kind of movement in in the esports industry and it, and it and it really gave a lot of growth um and it gave a lot of people hope but it's also harder to sustain because what you have with that is you always have the 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 younger kids coming up re- mm-hmm. faster reflexes and so every season you pretty much have this you don't have the same players you get these new players coming through every season it's harder to build storylines so yes it is good for the industry because it ultimately is pushing more people into becoming competitive gamers but it's much harder to maintain as an actual as an actual esport in that regard um so I'm a big fan of what Fortnite did with that because I think it was it was a big bold move, but I also think it is harder to have those storylines be developed and kind of have those underdog stories and and you know then you don't really have fans that come the season after season rooting for the same orcs. 
Um, whereas in League and, and in mm-hmm. PUBG, you have fans of the orcs. You know, they have merch, they have T-shirts, they watch their team play, you know, just like NFL or MLB or any other sport. Like, they have their team. And I think that that's a really powerful thing for a viewer is to have that connection and be rooting for somebody um, and rooting for them year and year again. And then when they get new players or they trade players, you're you're tracking it. You're excited to see how the new player fits into the team. Um, and, and so I think that that's, the, that's I like to look at those and compare those two as very drastically different examples that are ultimately the same a genre of game. So kind of switching gears here, Melodic Warrior writes in and he says, hi, Phil, welcome to the show. My question is this. I used to be a World of Tanks Bronze League player in 2014 and the Wargaming League in the North America. I have many connections around the world because of that, actually. And one thing that came up in conversations recently was the fact that sometimes we would not have dates for a season or world finals until sometimes only three weeks in advance. Is this common or just a series of unfortunate events? How far out do you end up having to plan details and locations? So, unfortunately, that is the case oftentimes in esports. Oftentimes, you uh, the events are not locked in until the last minute. Um, they get proposed early on, but logistics to make them, you know, to, to get all the ducks in a row, it takes a while to make sure that the, the production company... Um, you know, it has it has all the preparation they need. Um, and, you know, you see this differently with different games and, and different calibers. Um, so mm-hmm. like for the Fortnite World Cup, you know, that was known, you know, six to eight months or, you know, before it was. An, I think the dates were announced like six to eight months or something before the event. Whereas then, yeah, you have other events that pop up last minute. And that's really unfortunate. Um, for the players, especially if they you know can't make it to the to the event, so I do think that it it is pretty common. Um, the and and yeah, I didn't know that. Why does the wait? But why does that happen though? Why can't they just oh every August, generally speaking, is when we do it, and it's probably going to be the second half. So we're seeing more and more of what you just said. We're seeing more and more of like that yearly structure of like okay, like Team Fight Tactics by Riot's a great example where you know there's going to be a new set. The new set comes out. That then builds up to a championship event. That championship event is around the same time every year. And it's and then once that event's done, then a new set is released. Um, but yeah, I think the reason that it happens is there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of decisions that have to be made. There's a lot of stakeholders. And oftentimes it's really difficult to get all those stakeholders to weigh in early enough to really lock things in. Um, oftentimes you'll have one stakeholder who runs with the project, but then they don't run the details by their boss. So then when they like, you know, we might be a couple months away and all of a sudden they start running the details by their boss and their boss says, what? This isn't what we're doing. We need to do this. Now, all of a sudden the production team has to pivot. Everyone has to pivot. Everyone's scrambling around to figure out how to, how to meet the needs of the, of the client. And so therefore then unfortunately they can't make any public announcements because they also don't want Mm -hmm. to change it. Right. How bad does it look when you say we're going to have this event, this date, and then it's like, nope, we're actually going to have it this date. So a lot of yeah, times scramble it, to change your flights, please. Exactly. A lot of times it's that thing of, OK, we got to make sure that everything is lined up and everything on the back end is is good to go before we announce it to the public. And so that's why you see, you know, they've been talking about the event for months. They've been figuring out logistics and going through details. Um, but then, it, you know, oftentimes it takes that long. Often Venues can be really difficult to find also. Um, so if they're looking for the right venue, sometimes that process takes a while um, and, and then they might. And also what they might do is because of all the, the delays I talked about, they might have one venue that they're that they're soft holding. Right. They haven't fully locked in. They haven't fully committed, but they're planning on doing it on that venue. And then because they drag their feet, that venue is going to book a different event 
uh, like a, a concert, for example. So now they lost that venue. So now all of a sudden they have to pivot, find a new venue. So there's all these things that can come up just based off of how many stakeholders there are. You've got the developers at play who they want they you know, they have their I, vision I was going to say, I, I was going to guess a lot of it. I mean, look, it, it compared. Well, I mean, I don't know. It depends how you say marketing effects, because there's certainly a lot of marketing in traditional sports. Yeah. But I mean, like a lot of it is these people that own the game might want it to be on a certain day. And they're thinking of it for how they can make money, less so make it easy on the players, right? I exactly. mean, there's a certain degree of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's they're... But also, there's not like set football team stadiums ahead of time, right? So also, there's probably a lot more work in figuring out where you're going to run it. Yeah, there's a lot more work in where you're going to run it. There's a lot more, uh, you know, most times you have to bring in all your equipment. Um, you got to build the stage, right? When you go to play a football event, that the field is there. Yeah, you got to paint. Mm -hmm. You got to paint the right logos. Um, but oft oftentimes, like that structure is already built. Whereas uh, with esports, when you're doing a big event, you a lot of times you're converting a structure to be an esports event space. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that change. We're seeing more arenas pop up that are esports arenas that can host esports events that are ready to go. Um, and I think as we see more and more of those, and as we see like collegiate esports on the rise, which we are, um, you know, we might get to a space where there are more esports arenas and esports venues so therefore they can kind of have that that cadence that uh that we see in traditional sports because the arena is already ready to go and maybe they just bring in a few pieces of equipment but yeah for a big a big world championship land event you know you're taking a venue that was not made for esports most likely um because you need the number of seats right you need like 10,000 20,000 seats um and so you're taking that and you're building a stage in the center of it you're running all the cables you're you're putting up all the led screens um from scratch and everything is brought in and built uh from scratch you know the week before um by by the hardworking crew that does it um, DJ5K writes in and he says, hi there, question for Phil. Well, good, he is the guest, DJ5K. <laughs> uh, As a semi-invested viewer of a couple of esports games, I found that leagues and tournaments managed by the publisher or developers tend to be high production value, but also lead to choices and rules that are not what the competitive community or game community at large would have preferred. That applies to game balancing, tournament rules, but also casting and production decisions. Can you speak about the differences or I, what's better or worse between publisher organized esports and community third party organized esports? Thank you. I'm a former Heroes of the Storm esports viewer. Awesome. Yeah. Heroes of the Storm. I, I've never played it, but I've heard it's really fun. Um, and in terms of that comment it, it's a really good observation i'm i'm amazed um that that you know you were able to see all of those details just as the viewer but you're right when you have a developer organized or distributor organized event the production quality is higher because the budget tends to be higher there's more of that marketing investment in it um but also you do with that you have the vested interest of the game's future um so i think a lot of times when the developers are hosting or sponsoring the the event um they have their they have what they want to get out of the event and whatever that might be that might be promoting a new a new part of the game that might be pushing mm -hmm. some some new innovation or some new tweak to the game in the future in terms of balancing though i will say that most developers that i've worked with are very keen on um, on the community feedback and trying to balance the game to to you know what what a lot of the feedback is. That being said, though, I will say that there are so many fans and, and chat can be you know so crazy and so toxic sometimes that oftentimes it's that question of you know these people think that this would be better, those people think that that would be better, um, and so the distributors and the developers they ultimately have to make the decision as to where the game's going um, and what is going to what is going to really help 
the uh, competitive scene in that way. Um, and, but the feedback is heard and they do, they do, you know, oftentimes try to implement it. But that being said, there are big stakeholders at play. There are big movements and big pipelines that, you know, could be years. They could be, they could be making these decisions mm. based off of where they're planning the game to be in a year from now, as opposed mm. to, as opposed to, you know, okay, we're going to make this tweak, you know, um, for, you know, just because the, the, just because a few people want it. Um, and it's that question of how many people really want it. Is it going to make the game better? Um, is it going to break the game in some way? Maybe they've already tried it in the past and they had bad experiences with it. So the developers are more hesitant to do that. So there's all these different factors at play um, when it when it comes to that. And also, I think when you look at a community event, I think oftentimes you kind of look at it through, you know, the rose colored glasses because it is a community driven event. So you cut them mm. a lot more slack. I think, you know, you, you kind of you kind of have that that connection, whereas when you watch an event that is put out by a developer, you know, you really you really scrutinize the details because you're, you're trying to poke at the poke at the you know, the big dog. Right. And so I think that that, that kind of does come into play as well, but I do agree that, um, that the, the production quality is, I think if we can get more community events with better production quality, we'll be able to really see this play out. Um, but a lot of times that's the, one of the bigger focuses of the developers. And oftentimes it's a matter of, they can't, fix the game the way that the fans want it to be fixed by the time of the event they've i mean these development pipelines are crazy like the amount of work that these developers go through to get the game to where it is um is amazing and every time they change something you know other things break so they might change one thing and then something else breaks and that might be a week of a developer's time to fix mm -hmm. that or a week of a developer's time that he has to fix in a 24-hour period because the game's down and that is unacceptable so you know it's or it's, i mean like it's crazy week a gun in an online game and then I'm pretty sure this was a good decision. You might want to give it a month before the tournament to make sure they get used to the new balance. Exactly. And also, that's something that players will complain about all the time. Like, if mm. you change the game right before the championship, then everything they've been doing to train is just is lost like you know it completely throws them off their game and it kind of takes away from the validity of the competitive integrity of the esports event you want to see the players play the game that they've been practicing at the highest level possible and so to do that if you throw in a wrench um, mm -hmm. it, it can definitely make them angry and it can also uh, detract from what the show ends up looking like so it could very well be that they're planning on making that change that all the fans are asking for but they have to make it at the right time um, based off the life of the game the life of the esport um, and also whatever whenever that championship event is happening so they might just be waiting for the right time this piece of content is brought to you by Vite Ramen. For 2022, give yourself the gift of an easy-to-make-at-home meal that's healthy, reasonably priced, and above all else, actually tasty so that you actually do eat a healthy meal. I eat it all the time, and it really tastes fantastic. It's so easy to either eat a packet by itself as a lunch, or you can put a couple of eggs in there while it's boiling, and, well, you can then have a hearty meal at the end of the day. Click the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON to save 10% off a special bundle just for Moore's Law Z fans that includes spoon, chopsticks, and more. This is a great deal for you, and it really does help the channel tremendously. Seriously, I eat it. It's good. They've been supporting Moore's Law is dead for months, and you buying their products supports me. And you know what? You really should try to if you want a healthy and tasty snack to start out this year and maybe get rid of some of that holiday weight. Buy Vite Ramen today.
All right, so I'm going to start transitioning to entirely different discussions here. Kenahoon25 writes in and he says, Hey, Tom and Phil, with the RX 6600 XT being a 1080p killer, generally speaking, and how we discuss it, and cheaper than the weaker 3060, is this card slowly being used more in esports rigs, or is NVIDIA still just the go-to overall? This question is mainly to see if AMD is starting to get mindshare with esports gamers and teams. So, um, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't know all too much about the graphics cards uh, ecosystem, but I did ask, I did ask a very informed friend about this. Um, my speculation is that yes, because it's 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 less priced for a lot of esports people and a lot of gamers out there who can't afford the top of the line gear. Then yes, I'm sure that it is becoming a big player in that space. But I actually have the comment from a IT expert for an esports company, uh, and he says. I asked him, what do you think of the 6600 XT card? He said, it's 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 in between a 3060 and a 3070. I'd say it's a mid-grade card. I had issues with AMD in the past, so I'm a little biased against them. Also, you can't do NVENC encoding off of them. So that's why for him and working at the highest level of esports events, they're not being used currently by that company. That being said, I don't know what other companies are doing. This is just one expert's opinion, um, and and he's worked on a lot of really big events, and they're constantly going through which graphics cards to to have in their systems um, to make sure that they have the highest level, um, highest performing graphics card to for reliability's sake. Right, and for the encoding too, that can help with like streaming the game and stuff as well. So he's probably thinking of it from that perspective of, and you know, I, I, I AMD has great and, and a lot of their graphics cards alternatives. It's just, if that's what his software is set up to use, I can see that it's really hard. You know, I, I just, my speculation, I feel like AMD is probably making some headway in the lower sounds bad but bear with me what i actually mean lower tier esports rigs this mm -hmm. is like oh no but like someone built their own rig and they're getting into it i'm mm -hmm. guessing amd has a lot of sway there whereas in the professional space eh, you'll pay the extra money just to get i mean it's less about the cost of the rig at a certain point right oh absolutely especially when you have a big developer paying for the event and if something goes wrong and your excuse is oh well we didn't have the top of the line graphics cards you know that's unacceptable at the profession at or the... we switch software to save twenty dollars per card exactly something like that so from from the actual esports production end that's kind of the stake is you got to get the best um out there the best possible and it has to meet the specs of and the needs of the show but in terms of the players the player base i i imagine you're right that you know there there's always going to be people that that opt for maybe not the full ex the fully expensive option uh, just because they can't and and therefore they get the best that they can afford and that's that's the reality of it and that's what keeps um that's what keeps the market diverse right i mean that's what keeps you know one one card from optimize or one card from totally taking over but and and then i want to lead into these questions though because i was at what is it the carolina game show last year and like well, it was interesting, actually, for their esports competition. Half of it was, what can we even get our hands on? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I mean, I think they mostly used RTX 2060s with, mm -hmm. like, six-core i5s of some sort or, or i7s. I don't remember because I think they may have been older, so they were a six-core i7. But it's because that's because this is what we could get that was reliable for under a grand and have a enough of them because we want the same rig that everyone's using you know so i guess the calculus there's a little different but you still saw back then their panels were typically all 1080p 144 hertz like how 
What dis- experience do you have making decisions and what esports standard rigs are at a competition? Yeah, so that is that is that was usually a decision that was made above my head. Um, that was something that I didn't really have a lot of interfacing mm-hmm. with. Um, you know, I'd work with the IT team and and, and figure out what they were running. But oftentimes, um, that was a big part of it. And the su- the supply chain, you know, I mean, it, yeah, it's like for for a Fortnite competition, you got to get a hundred of those PCs. They all have to be exactly the same because competitive integrity, like you can't have any variance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that was a big part of it. And I think that's where for bigger events, you see sponsorship opportunities, right? You, you partner up with you know a company that's gonna provide the PCs and then you ship them back afterwards or something like that so you can so you can save the money on it. Um, but yeah, it, you, you can't vary. And I think that, that's another interesting thing where you take like an event like DreamHack, right? Which is a bring your own PC event. Um, mm. And everyone brings in their own PCs. So then you have, this, you know, you have this myriad of, of, of different equipment being used. Um, and with that, it becomes difficult because sometimes there's, there's issues of them not, um, you know, lining up correctly or not, not working with each other. So, well, and, and so I guess a question I kind of want to dig into as well is it, it basically that's the standard now 1080p 144. A lot of professional gamers do 1080p 240 hertz, but like, and I think this will happen. I think graphics cards are going to continue to innovate at a faster rate than they were the previous five years. I think we're going to double performance again at the end of this year, and I think we're going to double it again in under a year and a half after that. So we're looking at things that are, and already so many of these graphics cards just laugh at 1080p game. Right. Like it's a complete joke. But you know, if we get four times that performance three years from now, let's call it, like at what point do you think esports will push towards making a standard like? Is any of it like how much of it is, oh, this is easy to run so it's accessible and so we can make it consistent and how much of it is, eh, we wish it was a higher resolution. And I also imagine part of this is the streaming because I can attest to as a YouTuber, like I'm just not moving to 4K right now because it just takes up more space on everything yeah. to upload i guess i have google fiber now so the upload thing really isn't as much of an issue but it does take up more space on my ssd like it makes the cameras hotter <laughs> you know like there, there's so much that goes like how much of the like 1080p 100 to 200 hertz standard is just that it's manageable and how much of it if we had five times the performance you guys would go yep 4k 240 hertz here we go yeah you're absolutely right it's it's that balance of manageability how how What's the best we can get with the budget we've got, with the reality of manufacturing issues, and also, you you know, what where are we streaming this? You know, for a while, uh, you know, Twitch, and I'm not sure, forgive me, but I, I, I'm not even sure if you can stream 4K on Twitch yet. Um, and mm. I, I think you can on YouTube now, but I'm not sure about, yeah, like, a while. you can on YouTube. Yeah, a while ago, you couldn't even do 4K streaming on Twitch. So it was that question of, why are we going to get all, pay all this extra money to have mm. our production equipment be 4K when we're not even going to be able to broadcast it in 4K anyway? Um, so you're kind of like you have to weigh in all those different aspects right you have to weigh in all those different features that you need and then also the reality of the situation and and what you're trying to do with the event well so and i i understand maybe you weren't the person who would have been making these types of decisions but 
Like, have have you ever heard of like gamers going, oh, I wish it was a 1440p screen so that I could oh my God. see enemies in the distance better. But you're like, but we're streaming in 1080p. So at the end of the day, it's going to be sent out as 1080p. So we're not going to bother with 1440p. Like, is that something the professional gamers are asking for? Yes, absolutely. The, the, okay. the gamers, when they go to a competitive event, they will always gripe about something. They will always gripe about the mouse. They don't like the mouse. Um, they don't like the keyboard, whatever it might be. And so that's why some events, they say, okay, bring your own mouse bring your own keyboard but we're going to be running anti-cheat software so you can't you know mm -hmm. you can't be doing any any aim hacking or anything like that um and same thing with screen resolution uh for games that have spectator clients it's a little bit less of an issue because the spectators and the observers are able to set the uh, resolution to be what they need for the production. But for games where you're just doing a, a, a game capture, right? You're just using a capture card from the PC or console, that becomes a big issue because you're capturing whatever the player's seeing. So one of the things we ran into early with shooters mm. was players that would play in colorblind mode. Um, a lot of times players would play in colorblind mode who weren't colorblind. Yeah. They would do this because you know they could see things a little better. Players would pop more um, when they're hiding in bushes and things like that. And so that was, I remember directing a show and I cut to this camera and I was like, what, what's going on? This is absolutely like all the colors are weird. And it was because a player was playing in colorblind mode. So then that's where you have the league operations define what the players will be playing at beforehand, right? Like the, they, mm -hmm. they will let the players know, Hey, this is what it's going to be. This is what your setup's going to look like just to prepare them so they can practice that. Also the players typically for a big event, they will have kind of like a, uh, you know, a practice time where they can get on the stage before the event. They can mm -hmm. see what the equipment is. They can test out the station um, and make sure that it, it, it is up to their caliber. And then in games like league, you know, you'll see players, they'll sit down to play the, the, the championship game and they'll they'll pause the game they'll um right when it starts because something isn't right about their about their rig and about their setup and then they they talk to the it person or the league ops person try to dial it in as best as they can within the rules um, but those rules are set beforehand to make sure that it is an even an even playing field uh as much as it can be and competitive integrity is upheld so rafa zaya writes in and he says do people in the competitive scene really care about nvidia reflex or is that mostly just marketing? And I'm curious too, because both Radeon and NVIDIA have made these big pushes for lower latency toggles in games and stuff. And I'm gonna be honest, half the games I played them, it actually broke the game because it just <laughs> yeah. like cut my frame rate in half because of some like weird issue. And it's like, well, my frame rate's half. I don't care what the latency is, it's already worse. But like when they when nvidia announces these things when amd does is this something that comes up as a discussion regularly yeah it does it comes up as a discussion oftentimes you know people will buy it they'll try it and then they'll tell their friends oh it's garbage it works it doesn't work you know and so in terms of how it's being adopted i'm, I'm not sure like i don't have any statistics on on how it's actually performing and how many people are actually adopting it i think it's a cool thing um you know i think i think it, it it's a nice new addition you know based off what we were just talking about with screen refresh rates and stuff like that, I think it's a nice new angle to attack it with and saying, look, it's not the refresh rate that's the problem, it's the latency on your mouse and keyboard that's the problem, and now we're coming up with a fix for that. So I think it's cool, but it's hard for me to speak to the industry as a whole and and how many gamers are actually adopting it. I mean, obviously it's built for gamers. All of the marketing is, is making it really seem like it's this big thing that all the gamers are gonna be using. I imagine that once they work out a lot of the kinks, you're gonna see the, high, the highest level gamers 
adopting it because they are obsessed with the latency of their mind. I mean, how many times have you been watching an event and a player gets killed and they're like, oh, lag or, you know, whatever it might be, they blame it on the lag. So I think being able to have that control and at least being able to see what your what your mouse lag is, you know, similar to what when you're tracking your ping. Um, I think it, I think it's mm. a really good thing for just like, OK, is my system running properly? Um, and and then, of course, once it gets better and better, it's it's dialing that in. Um, and then a, and then I'm sure players are going to be still complaining about lag because that seems to be a, a, something that will never go away. But I think it's a cool thing. And I, I'm just not I, I, I'm not sure. How many? I, I polled a few of my friends who are gamers as well, just to see, and a lot of them said that they haven't used it yet, um, but they've heard, you know, mixed reviews. So I think it, I think it's still in the right. Um, well, so all right, let me move on to uh, this was something I came up with that I thought you probably would have a decent amount of an opinion on. Have you seen the recent developments in online hacking, like and how ubiquitous it's becoming in some games? Like I'm going to be honest, it just. Oh, it ruined a lot of games for me. I'm trying to think of the ones that yeah. <laughs> like there's a list. Battlefield yep. one, Battlefield Five, Call of Duty Warzone was unplayable for me for week yep. for months. Um I remember on PS2, SOCOM, and we just got good at kicking them before they ruined a room. Right. Like that type of stuff. And like older games that didn't have as, as much online patches. That was always a problem once the game was out for a while. Yeah. It's becoming, and, and the people making the hacking software, they're like bragging about it openly that you can't detect it because they're using machine learning to not, to just not even touch the game files itself. Yeah. Like, what do you think? Uh, this is becoming a, me and my brother, who's the usual co-host of the news episodes, we're becoming concerned we can't like online games anymore because of this. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a huge problem. Um, I hate it. I think it, it's it's exactly the opposite of what esports is about. Um, it takes away that competitive spirit. I can tell you from a production end, um, oftentimes you can see when someone's hacking. So what like oh, there yeah. like we will be we would be directing shows sometimes and we would have a suspected hacker and we would then send recording to to the developer. And, the, and these and, are shows where they're playing from within their own house or correct. something. Yes, correct. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and then you, once they're spotted as being a hacker, then they're obviously DQ'd from the tournament. They're never allowed to play again. Um, you know, things like that. And I, I think, yeah, it's it sucks that it ruins these games for the people that want to play and want to actually play and not cheat. And I think it's, it's, it's the same in my opinion as like performance enhancing, you know, like steroids and things like that in sports. Right. I think that it's something that should not be around and I hate it. I, I totally, yeah, but hate it's it. almost worse right at a macro level because it's like, I just want to go play soccer with my friends and yeah, then right. someone runs in was it Aziz Ansari actually had a joke about it? He's like, all right, so here's what it's like when you have an overpowered thing in a video game. You know, like, it's like, what if when you started a game of Monopoly, someone flew in and hit you with a rocket launcher? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's like, because it doesn't matter. It's like, I love that joke because it's like, right, imagine you're about to play soccer. Yeah. Then someone flies in and kills you with a rocket launcher. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think, yeah, it's it's horrible. My opinion is that people that do it that like why are you doing it just to be a troll or something like what satisfaction do you get out of winning when you're cheating um i don't know it, it doesn't it kind of takes a lot of the fun out of it well I, i'm curious what you think the solution is though because i mean I, you know me and my brother used to play a lot of online games together we still play some but it's basically we play them until there aren't 
hackers mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> like and then they show up like what do you think can be done when they're using machine learning to do this do we almost need to have separate gaming devices that are locked down just for playing warzone that they sell from the company themselves or or like do you do you, i'm is this a conversation you've had with experts in the industry and they're talking about ways to combat it that are new uh you know i think it's i'm sure that they are working on ways to combat it um in terms of recently i haven't had any recent conversations but it was definitely a, a big thing um back in the early days of Fortnite was figuring out you know how to make sure that that there was uh, something monitoring it and in terms of it being harder and harder to d- detect i think that's where the developers just have to work even harder to find ways to detect it right uh in terms of yeah having something that you need to play the game that's a really interesting idea um i've never really thought of that but like yeah some some like interface that goes between your mouse your keyboard that is like you know epic specific or or origin specific or something like that which kind of unlocks that ability um, or it might be you just end up having to sign away some more of your rights to play the game, right? It might <laughs> Which be, a lot of them are doing that, right. like kernel level, like monitoring it's, and stuff. Exactly. And I think that's what we're going to see realistically more of is just like, all right, you're, yeah, if you want to play this game, you have to open up the hood of your machine. Let us get all the analytics and all the data we want so we can make sure that you're not cheating and it's going to make the game better and more playable for everyone. And we promise we're not going to look at any of your personal files, right? And you just kind of have well, to choose. Well, not specifically, but yeah, we're also going to take this data and use it for ad advertising exactly yeah data is a huge revenue factor um and so i mean that's that's the game that's just going to be played right and then just like mm-hmm. with everything when you agree when you get a new phone and you agree to apple's terms or you know you name it android's terms um you kind of have to just you decide okay is this product worth it for me to sign away my rights um and if it is and what i get out of it is worth it then you know you'll do it and if it's not you'll you'll try to find something better or, or something that you you're more comfortable with yeah, it's funny when I, I brought it up before when I was at the Carolina game show, they were doing a Warzone competition. And I mean, they even had ones just on different consoles. So if I wanted to, for some reason, I could just everyone's using a base PS4. And it's like, oh, well, that's not going to have good graphics, but I bet it's fair, at least. And I thought about doing entering it. I, I didn't have the time, unfortunately, because I was there for work. But I was like, oh, it'd be nice to join a Warzone game that I know no one's cheating in. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, that game was and, super fun before the cheaters came in. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, the, well, the patching system with the files that keep breaking is why I don't play it now. Yeah. But I, I, I would say though, I've heard PUBG has a lot of hacking issues right now too. Mm. Like, I almost wonder, like, if it becomes hard for some of these competitive gamers to practice when you just have people flying and shooting sniper rifles across the map. Yeah. So what you'll have is um, for the competitive players of these mm-hmm. games, you'll have Discord groups, um, and then you'll have actual kind of arranged practice private lobbies. So they they will okay, practice so they with do each have other. To do that. Yeah, they'll practice with each other, and they do that also because they don't when they're playing pub games they often don't get the practice they need because, you know, whether d- despite the hackers, right, they're, play- they're just stomping on these people that are not their caliber. So to really get quality practice, they'll have groups and they'll have practice sessions um, in private lobbies. And, you know, oftentimes if they're a big enough organization, the developers will help, you know, build those private lobbies for them if, if the game doesn't support that um, or, or something, something of that nature. So that's how they get around that aspect. Um, and it's also just better for their professional development in terms of making sure that they're playing against the best all the time. Like, you know, back to sports, why would an NFL player go and, and play against high school players um, to get better, right? They, they, they just wouldn't equate. Um, well, let me move on. I've got a couple of final wrap-up questions here. Zane Muket writes in and he says, hey, Phil, if you had to guess 
How large do you think esports will get in the coming decades? For me, it is hard to imagine it even in a hundred years getting as big as football is now. This is mainly because most esports games have complex and constantly changing rules compared to football, which has been around for 50 years. So I guess he's talking about American football. Do you see esports changing to become more like current major sports, or do you see it staying something mainly only hardcore players of a game would watch? So I I think, uh, and this is of course speculation, right? Um, but I, I have a feeling that it's going to become just as big as traditional sports, maybe even bigger. Um, we're seeing such a spike in the player base. I think COVID really was a big thing for that, right? People with the pandemic, they a lot more people adopted gaming um, because they couldn't go out and do the things they wanted to do. Um, but we saw, I mean, the 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 number of people playing video games in the world is just continuing to grow. And with that, also the demographics are changing in terms of people who are playing games. Um, it's not just kids playing games, right? You have people like us, like I'm, I'm in my thirties and I'm still gaming almost every day. Um, and then now you're starting to get parents of kids who are playing games with their kids as a bonding activity because their kids want to play games and, and you're seeing parents actually starting to get interested in esports. So I think what it really comes down to for me is the more people out there playing video games, um, there will always like the more esports will become popular. And I think the just to, to address what you said about new games popping up constantly. I think that is just a part of the ecosystem. And I think that's why we're not going to see a lot of games that will be around for a hundred years, but I think gaming and esports will be around and it will be that question of what's the game that's popular. Um, you know, what, what's really grabbing the attention of the viewers and the players. Um, and it's just going to continue to develop. And I think that based off of the way the technology is developing, uh, it's just, and, and how integral technology really is to our life now. Um, whereas, you know, 50 years ago, technology was not as, as big of, of a, of, of an aspect to just normal daily operations. Um, you know, now most days I'll sit in front of my computer for you know, six, seven hours of work, maybe take a walk and then maybe game on my computer for another two to three hours. That's a lot of times behind the screen. That's a lot of time integrating with technology. And then as well, once you look at the mobile scene, I think the mobile scene and the accessibility that comes with mobile gaming is just going to continue to keep esports growing. And I think then it just really comes down to the direction that it grows. Um, and also, you know, what, what people want to see where people want it to be similar to sports and then where people want it to be different because we already are seeing a lot of similarities being adopted in esports that are pulled straight from the sports industry um and and then we're also seeing things where the esports industry wants to do things differently and i think that's also a really special quality of esports that is one of the reasons i love it is that it's an industry that the, the people are not afraid to be different they're not afraid to be bold in that regard and they also don't have 50 to 100 years, depending on the sport to fall back on of tradition. Um, so I mm -hmm. think and I think that constantly changing and dynamic um, ecosystem with new games coming in is just going to keep that spirit alive. And it's going to keep people looking for that new game, that new esport, uh, and that new way for them to entertain themselves. And then ultimately to connect with their friends and connect with other people, because that's, you know, why most people game. You know, it's become a social thing uh, and it's how mm -hmm. we connect with each other. And I think that's also why people like to watch esports is they like to watch fellow humans playing the game that they love and they love to play uh, and they connect with the the competitive uh, spirit. They connect with the, you know, the 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 heartbreak of loss. And of course, they connect with the thrill and the joy of victory. Well, and it's interesting you bring up the more people that play games, the bigger esports will get before it overtakes like, you know, 
American football or, you know, I don't know, other other popular sports that are out there. I doubt it would ever be bigger than soccer just because of soccer. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what I will say is I, I started looking up some stats after you said that. And it's like, how many people watched the Super Bowl? 101 million people this year. Uh, how many people play Fortnite every year? 80 million. Mm. So it's like, hmm. But that's true. So maybe if your entire pool, you have to maybe even if for the most part, yeah, it's people that play video games that watch the esports. Yeah, but if you get enough people playing one of these games that it competes with the Super Bowl, then you'll have a lot of people watching esports competitions. And like there's three million people playing Fortnite right now. The average NFL game seems to get 17 million viewers, but that's like once a week during the season, 17 million people. Whereas literally right now there's three million people playing. Fortnite. So, yeah, I guess if you get a game popular enough that is and, and people, I mean, it, it's funny just 20 years ago how we used to be like, do you play video games? It's like, uh, even back then I was like, I listen to music too. I'm a human. Yeah. What yeah. Are you? <laughs> right. It, it feels like gaming is getting to that point now where everyone plays a little bit of something at some point probably every year. Oh yeah, even my mom plays solitaire every night before she goes to bed, which is a video game. You know, like mm. online chess. Is 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 becoming a big a big esport, which is awesome. And I'll tell you, actually, working on a chess show is pretty fun. Um, but yeah, I, easy I, to tell if they're cheating too, because yeah. they can't. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, you know, to to that point, um, with a lot of those t TV stats, a lot of those are are padded, right? Um, a lot of people will say like, oh, if if there's a household that is on the channel, then they'll give like three views because they figure there's a family yeah. watching it, right? So a lot of times those are are padded and are kind of built up for advertising purposes, um, and because they can't it's incentivized to sound big for advertising, and they and they can't really tell, they can't really know how many people are sitting on the couch watching that TV, right? They, there's True. just no way for them to really know. So they they kind of speculate and they figure out kind of a middle ground approach, but then you know that that it's it, so it's it's hard to be accurate in that regard where yeah you can tell the number of players playing a game literally <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah um timothy gallagher writes in and he says hi tom and phil i'm trying to start an esports program at my university i have two questions how do you go about promoting esports events and then number two how do you maintain attendance at an esports event in my experience a lot of people leave after elimination or after their friends lose yeah, that's a that's a great question, and uh, more power to you building that program. I'm a big believer in esports and education. I think that it's it's here to stay, and I think that we need to really continue to build these kinds of programs. Uh, in terms of promoting esports events, uh, I I one of the things that I love about esports, and I think the really uh, one of the biggest powers of esports is communities, right? And building that community to to be a community and to work with each other. Um, and I think that. As you focus on building that club and that community, I think that's really where you're going to find a lot of that power and a lot of that, um, you know, people staying and coming to the event and being a part of it. Also, you can look at activations, um, you know, depending on the size, you know, you, you can do giveaways, you can do things like that um, to, to kind of promote it. And you can maybe do those where if people are leaving the tournaments early, they have to stick around, right? They have to stick around until the end of the championship to get a certain, um, whether it's a drop, if, if you have buy-in from the game, whether it's, uh, you know, something that like is a physical thing that you hand out um once the champion is announced you know we're going to be giving away all these all these you know branded cups or you know special you know hats for for the teams or, or whatever it might be i think those are good ways to do it um also i think just building awareness right and i think i think like building things that make the players feel like 
legit athletes or legit competitors, right? I think is important. So when you go to a big university that has, you know, banners and things like that of the of the athletes, it, it makes people want to go to the games. It makes them feel like celebrities. Um, and and I think that that's something that can be done on the esports front. You know, making promotional videos with the teams that are playing. Um, you know, uh, just advertising the event in the university, putting up you know a banner or something like that, um, and making sure that on social media the players are also being very active. Um, and and kind of getting that outreach um, for people that are into it. Uh, also, you could work with building, you know, having tiers of esports. You could have like an esports club for people that maybe aren't at the competitive mm -hmm. level, and then you could have the esports team. And then what you're doing there is you're just building that community and diversifying that community to the point where you have built-in fans. Then you have people that are getting to know the the actual team players. They're part of this club community, and then that just builds uh, the potential to have more fans, the potential to also have better players because you'll have maybe some of those people will join the club thinking it's just a club and then they'll end up being really good at the game and end up working their way up to, to becoming part of the actual team. So I think it's really about you defining your community uh, and then mm -hmm. building that community um, and, and figuring out how to diversify that community. Uh, also, free food's always good if you want to give away free food. I'm sure people will show up for that or some, something of that nature. So I think it, it's really thinking outside of the box. And I think it's also a problem that's going to be fixing itself over time as esports gains traction, as more people get familiar with it, and as more people get interested in it. I think you're going to see more of an interest um, in, in making that. And also just the, the the cooler the event is, the more people are going to talk about it, that's going to drive more, more students to come um, and, and have a good time. I would also just say, you know, my advice is much less informed than you from the literal esports thing but i did like build an airsoft team at my college michigan awesome. tech or i built a club you're right you, what do you want do you want this to just be competitive play it's competitive but it's for fun do you actually want to build a team define it all i wanted to do was you know i went to michigan tech which is up in the upper peninsula above wisconsin so there's like all types of abandoned forests and buildings <laughs> and i it's like dude all i want to do at this engineering college is just get a bunch of engineers to drive jeeps around the woods with machine guns we built on them and, <laughs> and we did we eventually got to the point where we had like mill ops with like 60 people and vehicles and wow I, some of the funnest time of my life by the way i'm so lucky i was able to experience that type of stuff but the team started with the previous president like i don't know they do like 5v5 every other weekend and i was like we're doing it every weekend so they know if they show up here we go to an area you've got you've got to do it and just do it and make it fun and you'll make mistakes and then just do it just every two weeks we're doing it then yeah we're, whatever we can scramble we're gonna play and then we'll learn and then eventually you'll have a club and the college will probably give you funding if you go to them because they usually have programs for that then you can say okay what can we afford oh we got a bunch of you know, I don't know, 1650 laptops, but now people don't need to bring their own computer. Now they mm -hmm. can sit down you go, just start doing it and you'll get better at it. The school will fund it. And then you can decide if you want to make a team. Yeah, exactly. And I think you hit the nail right on the head. You know, it the more the the more you invest in it, ultimately over time, the the more the more you're going to get out of it. And I think investing in the production and having you know broadcasts and productions, showing off the space, getting the recruitment board of the university right. If you can get a nice little facility that looks nice and has some gaming stations, that's something that could be given on a tour and said, look, we have a state of the art esports team and we have an esports um, complex here, and and that's a that's a selling point for the university and also drives recruitment. 
Yeah, and I don't know how big your this person's university is. I was like ten thousand students. But that's not a lot of people. Word of mouth will spread there. Yeah, you know, and you all go to the same classes. So if you start doing this every week and ten people show up, they'll tell their friends where they're going next week, and then they'll bring more people. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> you know, stop worrying about making it perfect. Just do it. You know, and you'll get better at it. Amen. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, that's about all of the time I think we have here. We covered. All the things I wanted to discuss, and it was a regular length episode. There was, I, I've honestly learned a lot today, and I really enjoyed having this opportunity to learn about something that touches gaming hardware in a professional sense that I just was a complete blind spot to me how it all operates and runs. And I mean, I really want to thank you for coming on, Phil. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, if not, what do you want to plug? Yeah, I would just say, you know, thanks for having me. This was, I love talking about this stuff. I'm a total, I'm very passionate about this space. So I, any chance I get to, to talk about it and pontificate, you know, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, and, and in terms of anyone out there listening, who's learning about esports, you know, I would say just, just like Tom said, if you're looking to get involved, just do it keep moving forward, um, you know, and, and then at a certain point, you're going to get to a point where, you know, you want to keep improving your production quality. And as you do that, you know, look for, look for companies like my company out there that provide really high end solutions. Um, but just don't, don't let anything hold you back from being in the space. If mm -hmm. it's a space you want to be in, if you're passionate about it, you can find a way to make it happen. You can find a way to be in this industry. Um, and also feel free to add me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I love connecting with people. If you have any other questions or, or you're just, you know, you just want to kind of spitball some ideas about esports, please connect with me. Um, and, uh, and I really enjoyed this and I can't thank you enough, Tom. And the questions were fantastic. So the community mm -hmm. that is behind you, they're brilliant and, uh, really compelling stuff. It was very easy to, to keep the conversation going. And I really appreciate that. So thank you for your time. Oh, yeah, of course. And of course, everyone listening, you can become part of that community. If you support us on Patreon, you get to ask me and guest questions. This will come out early and ad free for you. There's exclusive podcasts and um, yeah, you can talk to the people that ask these good questions and me after this goes live. So remember, all of that's out there for you. If you can support us, we can't do it without our supporters. And again, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for coming on, Phil. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. 
Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it, and so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Mellon, Anthony Greffa, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yacht, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al-Khwari, Frederick Lau, Lynn Yee, Justin Paris, Zachary Martin, Terrence Harrod, Drita Fole, Phil S, D31337 Antics, Jackson A. Miller, Jesse Jaskowiak, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lee Wilkin Kilo, Fatboy Deezeru, Daniel Hyde, Agaim PA81, Nathan Mose, Cole Attic, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, F7GOS, Matthew Landavazo, My Name Is Nobody, Judson N, Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Rintaro, Matsuka, John Jameson, Sam Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Rounder, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Meyer Techrans, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, 3DS Boy 08, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Sandy Garrido Saunderson, Joaquin Hagen, Teak Autumn, Sol Connor, Michael Casa, Andrew S. C. Jitz, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Hexa Puma, Sam San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Zoot Suit Taylor, Trevor Power, Stu Alenia, Nana, Daniel Nishwal, Franco Frederick, Dane Galanowski, Ian Clifford, Axel Cisneros, Leighton Perry, Joseph Kierman, Brett Summers, Blake, Donovan and Russell, Noah Nicoella, Zucky, Martin Porcheggi, David Cannon, Ricky Tam, Hulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canos Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Brucha, Jeremy Show, Mitchell Pell, Silvanos, Eddie Del Castile, Jacob Blaster, Luis Correa, Deke, Otiv Akurtz, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Ryan Riggleman, Justin Gower, Caillou Markelli, Dave McCoy, Valcom Alev, Gabe Langner, Rodney, DNA Tech, Michael Deaton, MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Sarcastro, My Sharona, Y True, Roman WM, William W. Draper, Air Rats, Spamton G. Spamton, Henry Jenks, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amiable Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, James Anderson, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, R. Pete Sharma, Meet and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads, Matthew Lazier, Benjamin Oshley, Mark Mitchell, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Wisink, Mohammed, Jean DeBont, Pulse Media, Sean Ashmont, Daniel Dewar, Stefan Jang, JS MMH, Georgie Kostadinov, PCBs22, Reginald Ari, Narethiel Ivan, Charles Russell, Hal Buma, Akarsh Edithia, The Grid, Andrew S., Chris Rich, Powell, Zig Artowski, Desist, Josh Law, Chris B. Erbakken, Chrysantine, Zabit03, and thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs> <laughs>